Come now to the third portion of our service where we will fellowship and commune with the Lord. He calls us to this time through the book of Colossians 3.16. It says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the call is to let the word of Christ richly dwell in us. Greg is going to come. He's going to deliver that word to us now. Brother. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to um, Esther chapter 3 will be the reading we begin with this morning as we enter into our study. We're in Esther chapter 9 and uh, we'll get through verses 15, 1 through 15. And then next week, um, the anticipation is that we'll be finished with this book, but it, it may be a couple, I don't, I don't know, I haven't studied it yet. But for this week, to um, set up our, our study, we're going to start in chapter 3, 5 through 6, 8 through 9, 12, and then 13, then we're going to go to 9. Um, so this is God's word, brothers and sisters. Let me invite you to stand together with me of reverence and respect for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Esther 3, verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Skip down to verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws, so it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it's, if it's pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. Skip down to verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned. Verse 13. And letters were sent to couriers um, to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day. The 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. And to seize their possessions as plunder. Now if you would go to chapter 9, verse 1. 11 months later. We pick it up in verse 1. Now, in the twelfth month, that is the month Adar, on the thirteenth day, when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain ma the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary, so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, what a delight and joy it is to sit to stand right now, but to sit here soon in fellowship with you around your word. Lord, to take upon us this meal, which, Lord, to the a worldling would seem strange to talk about the reading of your word and the studying of it to be food. But, Lord, we know it is spiritual food to our souls. God, I pray you would delight us this day. Overwhelm us with your goodness, your grace, your, 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 your love, your kind intentions that you have for us so gloriously and graphically displayed in this chapter. Father, we pray you bless our fellowship. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. 
Lord, enable us to fellowship with you and give me grace to preach as a preacher with fidelity to your word. And Holy Spirit, would you attend it? Though it might be heard, listened to with unction and power according to your will. We pray and entrust this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Many of you have heard of the word redemption. And if we were to define it, my guess is many of you would define it and could define it. And you might say such things like involving the cross of Christ, the forgiveness of sin, reconciliation, and the like. And you would not be wrong if those were your responses to what is the idea behind redemption in Scripture. However, you would not be fully correct. The word for redemption in the Bible references in the context of slavery of the ancient world, both in the Old and the New Testament. And it referred to the process or the act whereby someone purchased a slave out of their condition into um, another. It's an act of restoration where you are taking someone's slavery and you are restoring them to the place of being free. And thus, redemption in the Bible does reference the cross of Jesus Christ, obviously references reconciliation with God, but if that's where you stop, you are stopping short of redemption. Redemption has an eschatological view towards it. It has a view towards the end, where we are restored to the fellowship that we had with God prior to the fall. That's redemption. So we've just been partly In one sense, the process is still going, sanctification, right? Which is going to culminate when we're glorified in the presence of God. But that's what the Bible ultimately is referencing and has in mind when we talk about redemption. And that, brothers and sisters, is where chapter 9, 1 through 15, directs our focus to, ultimately. Chapters 1 through 6, as you know, um, lead up to 7, 8, 9. 7, 8, 8, 9 is the second to last section of this uh, book, Old Testament Gospel, which um, details, 789, details the end, the telos, why God is doing what he's doing in chapters 1 through 6. So get this, 1 through 6, everything going on there is pointing and directing us to chapter 7, 8, and 9. Everything that took place in 1 through 6 was preparing us for 7, 8, and and nine. Now get this, brothers and sisters, Mordecai and Esther, or better yet, this book was written for God's people, beginning with, in the intertestamental period, where there would be no prophets, no miracles, no theocratic kingdoms, no theocratic kings. God's people would be left in a time of silence where they would no doubt feel distant from God. And they could easily begin filling in blanks like, oh boy, things aren't going well. It must be because we've turned our back up on God. Um, things aren't going the way we'd like. It must be because God's punishing us. That's what you do oftentimes at those moments. Okay? Well, Esther and Mordecai are a type of people. They are real people. But God wrote this. Romans 15.3 tells us, brothers and sisters, that everything written in the Old Testament are written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. Okay, so we take Esther as God writing this to prepare and equip his people in the intertestamental period, in the New Testament era, in our era, where there are no prophets, no kings, no theocratic kingdoms. Okay, messianic kings. Other than Jesus Christ, right? And so um, we understand, therefore, that, that this book is layered. 
It is an accurate description of what took place in Persia so long ago. But it is also a glorious picture, shadow, um, type of what God is doing in your life this very moment. Chapters 1 through 6, as bad as they were, as difficult as they were, as hard as they were, were preparing God's people for a very specific end. Your entire life, good times, bad times, the hard times, the difficult times in the past, present, or yet to come, are all for a very specific purpose, detailed in Esther 7 through 9. As it relates to the non-believer, we see their destruction in chapter 7 with Haman. As it relates to God's people, you and me, we see our exaltation in chapter 8 with Mordecai and Esther. In fact, if you read this book from the perspective of, of the, old time, uh, of the uh, um, um, end times, eschatology, it is shocking how this book parallels exactly what's going to happen. We've seen it, and we'll see it again this morning. This morning, we're looking at chapter 9, which is the third element where God gives us the end, the, the tell us, the, the end game in everything God's doing. This is the end game, brothers and sisters. You might oftentimes say, God, why are you doing what you're doing in my life? Why are you doing this? And this chapter is the end game. It, it, this is one of three that gives us the end game, the answer to that question. This is what God is doing in your life. This is where God's leading you and me. So with that, let's dive in. And what happens is chapter uh, 9, verse 1, we begin with an overview, what I'm calling an overview of God's redeeming grace. So let's dive into it. I'll, we'll, we're going to walk our way through it. Verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, that is, the month of Adar, on the 13th day when the king's command and edict were about to be executed. At this moment, be thinking of the last judgment. Okay? We're going to study what's going on here, but think of the last judgment. Because that's, that's what this is a type of. Okay? They've been waiting for 11 months for this day of judgment where they're going to be killed. It's a horrible day. And on that day, on the 12th month, that's when it's going to happen. On the day when the enemies of the Jews hope to gain mastery over them, you'll never believe what happened. It was turned to the contrary, so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. As I referenced in the opening reading, Haman had a problem with Mordecai. He had a problem with Jews. In fact, he had this unworldly, this bigger-than-life problem with Mordecai, such that he wasn't happy if Mordecai was killed as a Jew. He wanted every Jew to be killed, right? Esther chapter 3, verse 6. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. Now we saw, when we looked at that uh, chapter a couple weeks back, a couple few weeks back, six weeks, um, we saw that this passage is layered. That, how do you explain this, this weird, uh, over-obsessive passion to just kill all the Jews? Well, we saw that behind this passion was another conflict going on, raging. It's been raging since before this world, the physical world, perhaps somewhere in those creation days began. And that war is found, is detailed us in Revelation chapter 12, verse 3. Let me read it for you. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, that's Satan, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, who's the people of God, who was about to give birth to the Messiah, so that when she gave birth, he might devour the Christ, her child. 
verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. So from the beginning of creation, there has been a battle that's been raging in this world between Satan and Christ, the Messiah, and his people. And you see that battle going throughout redemptive history, detailed for us moment, uh, many, multiple times. And here you've got that moment, uh, another example, where Satan is seeking to, to snuff out what? All the Jews, all God's people. Why? So he can snuff out the Messiah. Right? It's funny. It, it's, almost, it, it, it's the source of a lot of science fiction movies. Right? Look, if I can't get you, I'll go back and get your grandparents. So we will go back in time and attack your grandparent, kill him, I'll kill you. That's exactly what the, what the Old Testament's um, detailing many times. Satan's trying to kill Christ by killing his people, as described in Revelation uh, 12. So in chapter 9, we got another example where this clash is in full bloom where Satan is trying to attack and kill and wipe out the people of God. But what does God do? Let's look at it in detail. Verse 1. On the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. Talk about amazement. Out of the jaws of death. Did you see that, brothers and sisters? God does not Keep his people from this trial. But in the midst of the trial, in the jaws of death, out of those jaws, he pulls his people victoriously. And this is exactly what God has done throughout redemptive history with regards to Christ and his people. There have been times where the line of Christ is down to one person. And that person is being attacked by Athaliah. And yet that one person is preserved. Why are they attacking that, that, that child, that child king, so they can wipe out Christ? Well, brothers and sisters, we know that comes to a culmination at the cross of Jesus Christ. Think with me for one moment as we leave this passage in your minds. On the cross of Jesus Christ, at that time, Satan, at that moment, was this was the culmination, the climax of Satan's attacking of Christ. It's not the culmination and climax of God's attacking Satan. That's going to be the second coming. But during this time, Satan was in his heyday. He had actually possessed one of Christ's disciples. Think about that. What a victory. He had, in the previous three or four hundred years, had so compromised and perverted Judaism so that when the Messiah came, they wanted to kill him. And those same leaders who wanted to kill him incited the crowds, encouraged the, the crowds to yell crucify. And they did. And Christ, the Messiah, was executed. He died and was, was in the earth three days. Can you imagine if you could see the world as God sees it, as if we had the eyes to, to see what Satan and his unholy host of fallen angels were doing those three days? They would have been, you know, you know ding dong, the, the, uh, the Messiah is dead, right? They'd be cheering and laughing and rejoicing. Now, there'd be that little issue there with the torn temple curtain. We're not sure what that means, but it doesn't matter. The Messiah is dead. We won. We won. But what did God do, brothers and sisters? It's so important that you see. God used the very attack of Satan to bring about his redemption. And that's what I want you to see in this very first point. When it comes to God's redeeming grace in your life, where he ultimately is going to restore you to himself, God does not redeem you in spite of your circumstances. 
So many of us here are going, man, you know, I wish I could have, I wish I didn't have this part of my life. I wish I didn't, didn't have, have that. I'm wounded. I'm broken. I, I, I can't be a witness. I can't serve God because of all these different, different shadows and, and, and skeletons in my closet. Brothers and sisters, God does not redeem you in spite of your badness. He doesn't redeem you in spite of the things going on in your lives. He redeems you with the very things that you and I are so ashamed of or so struggling with. He redeems you in cancer, not in spite of it. That's what Romans 8, 28, we saw that. God causes all things to work together for, for, for good. He uses it, and that, brothers and sisters, is a very important element of God's redeeming grace. How does God redeem you? He's not going to redeem you out of this world so that you are now separate from the world, not to be engaged you know, in the world. No, he's going to redeem you where you are. And all of the skeletons and the difficulties and the struggles and the trials and the hardships and the inabilities and all the things that you might chalk up as being, man, this, this makes me not the most noble minister or servant in Christ's kingdom. He's going to use that and transform you there and enable you to be the man or the woman God's called you to be with the very things that you and I right now are hiding from the world. That we see in chapter 9, verse 1, the 12th month, that is the month of Adar on the 13th day when the king's command and edict were about to be executed. He didn't, he didn't say, nope, those are done. We're going to suspend that law. We saw that last week. He doesn't. He says, let the law go. Let it come in full force. What happened? When the king's command and edict have, were about to be executed on that day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, it, by, this is redemption, it was turned to the contrary so that the Jews themselves gained mastery over those who hated them. Brothers and sisters, this is just amazing. That, these are 40s, that's a taste of the redemption we're going to see here. And that's a taste of the redemption, that's a, a, a look at the redemption that God is doing in your life right now. Okay? So look at the things that you might right now, if I had started this sermon by saying, I want you to give me a list of all the things that you would call liabilities in your life. I'm not talking financial. I'm just talking gifts, lack thereof, sins, bad choices, situations. What are your liabilities? Guess what, brothers and sisters? Romans are Romans. Esther 9.1, look at it. God is going to enable you to gain the victory. God's going to have you gain the victory over those. He's going to do it. That's the redeeming grace of God. And the end time when we're with, with God, restored in our fellowship with him, we're going to look back and watch with awe of the history um, as we talk and, and describe, this is what God did in my life. And it'll be story after story, millions upon millions upon millions of stories, which will never grow old hearing of how God transforms and changes. That's redemption. With that, then let's look at the actual redemption of how, how God did it with his people at this time. A lot of parallels to us. Verse 2, the actual redeeming of God's people. The Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. All right, so though Haman's decree has not been suspended, and what was the decree? Let's review it. The decree was that, God, that, that basically the king, Ahasuerus, granted to everyone but the Jews 
a deputization for one day. They're deputized. They become formal agents of the, of the Persian Empire, and they've been charged to kill Jews, to kill God's people. That's the first decree. The second degree, Mordecai's decree, what did it do? It did not obviate it. It didn't cancel it out. The last judgment's still coming. So what does God do? He gives a second decree, and that decree took away the threat of death in the first. And what was that threat? It deputized the rest of the nation, the Jews, to be um, official agents of the Persian Empire so they could formally defend themselves. And it made all the difference. I got a quote there for you, 1908. I guess the Jews, they were 1907, 1908. It was a horrible time of persecution in Russia towards the, the Jews. And Paul humped, hopped, uh, whatever, 1908 wrote these words. If the authorities had allowed the Jews to organize armed resistance, the numerous massacres in Russia during the past few years would have been nipped in the bud. But as a rule, the assailants of the Russian Jews were supported by the governors, military commanders, officers of the police. That's not what happened with this. No, the second decree enabled God's people to legally defend themselves. And that's exactly what they did. Now, notice how they did it. This is instructive for us living in the intertestamental period or in the post-New Testament era. How did they do it? Notice with me. Um, Verse, uh, what is it? Verse 2, notice it says, um, they banded uh, together, right? Um, they They didn't hunker down in their households. You know, shut the doors, lock them, double bolt them. Hey, we have 11 months. I'm going to build three or four doors and three or four window coverings, put, you know, big, huge um, bars on my, my doors. And they just sat there like, like, like scared rabbits waiting for the 24-hour period of, of execution to be done. They didn't do that. What's the text say, brothers and sisters? The Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the provinces. They assembled in their cities. What does that mean? They formed many militias. In every city and every place in Persia, they didn't stay separate. They got together as a corporate people in the town square. And when any one person or two people or four people or small bands attacked a Jewish home, the entire militia went out and defended it. I can imagine not one person locked their door that day. Not one person barred their window. Because what did they do? They banded together. And the amazing thing is, brothers and sisters, that is God's plan for how he intends his people to survive in this fallen world. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4. As a result, we're no longer to be children. He's talking to the individuals. Tossed there, here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trick of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. That's what happens when you stand alone as a Christian. You're, you're tossed to and fro. But speaking the truth and love to one another is the implication. As a group... As you, as you band uh, uh, together, speaking to one another in love, we're to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, corporately, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each, indiv- each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love, for the perfecting of itself in love. This is redemption. How does God plan for us to do it? As a church body. You know, you read the papers, there are people saying peace and safety, safety, peace, safe safe and effective. And you got those people preparing for the zombie apocalypse. Brothers and sisters, if you're in the body of Jesus Christ, if you're in this body, I know some of you are saying, man, I'm storing up food. Make sure you store up food enough for you in this body. 
That's how we survive. Make sure that you, that you have a quiet time, not just for you. Make sure you don't feed your soul. You feed the body of Jesus Christ with, you, with your quiet times. You, you come here to bless. That's how the church of God succeeds and survives in the post-New Testament era. It's together as God's people joined uh, together. In this context, I love the words of Landon Dowden. You got the, the quote there where he writes, when people ask me how our church is doing, one of my responses is that we are not fighting one another, but we are fighting for one another. Indeed, one of the greatest ways we can serve those in our faith family is to help them fight for joy in the Lord while the battle with the flesh, the world, and the devil rages. All right, so that brings us then to the next verse four, or three and four, where the Gentiles now, God factors them in. Notice verse three. Even all the princes of the province, the satraps, the governors, and those who were doing the king's business assisted the Jews. Now understand, brothers and sisters, footnote here. Many of the commentators saying, yeah, this is just feigned. This is all fake. They knew that Mordecai was in power, therefore they're, of course, going to help him. This text doesn't indicate it was fake. So when I read that in these commentaries, like, I understand that's a human response. And no doubt there was a percentage of those governors and leaders in those different cities who did it because they wanted, they wanted to get on the good side of Mordecai. No question. But look what the text says. Because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house. His fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man, Mordecai became uh, greater and greater. Remember what we talked about, the dread of? We just looked at this the last chapter. What, is, what was the dread of the Jews? The dread of the Jews is the God behind them. That's what the dread of the Jews was. The dread of God's people was that they came, their God perceptively was conquered through the exile, weak God, and they come here, and all of a sudden their God is conquering all of the Persian gods. Their God is too powerful for us. That's the dread of the Jews. It's all God-centered and God-focused. Well, likewise here, the dread of Mordecai, was, was, was Mordecai's dread was the fact that he was an evil man? He took delight in the sufferings of people, tortures, executions. Was he a Stalin? Was the main thrust of his administration terror? Absolutely not. It's the opposite. Well, then what's the dread of Mordecai? The dread of Mordecai is the exact parallel to the dread of the Jews. And what is the dread of the Jews? The God behind this man. Who can compete with this God? You see an example of this in just a couple hundred years prior to that with Daniel, 605. Daniel's in, in, in Babylon, and he's, God has blessed this man. He clearly his hands on this man. And Nebuchadnezzar sees it. And so we pick it up in Daniel chapter um, 2, where we read, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel. Now, brothers and sisters, kings, great kings, don't bow before another man. He did. And then he calls people to worship him, gave orders to present to him offerings and fragrant incense. That's worship language. Man, why are they giving so much deference to Daniel? Because he's such a great guy? No, because of his God. The text ends, verse uh, 47. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and the Lord of lords. That's the dread of Daniel. That's the dread of Mordecai. And brothers and sisters, that is what was going on here. These other governors, these Gentile governors, and some, many of which are helping because they see the God who's behind Mordecai. Now, are they Christians? Are they genuine followers? Probably not, but they behold him, just like Nebuchadnezzar. They behold and they see the significance of the greatness of their God. And so they act accordingly. You know what's amazing? Laird. 
Do you know, if, if, if you know your eschatology very well, you know that at the end time, what's, what is every person going to do on this earth who has ever lived? Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on Jesus the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the, the uh, Father. Wow, the day's coming when everyone's going to bow their knee, a knee uh, to Jesus. And guess what? At that time, you know what's going to happen? Something incredible. At that time, just like in the... Uh, 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 Fellowship of the Ring or whatever it is. The, the Lord of the Rings. It's not in the books, but at the very end of the, the movie, you know, you stand. Okay, uh, Colossians 3. On the last day when Christ is revealed, we read, when Christ who is a life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Brothers and sisters, there's going to come a day when all the world, the dread of God is going to be upon them. And they're going to as well recognize us as being his bride, his children. That day's coming. Incredible. All right, picks back up now, verse 5 through 10. Then the Jews struck all their, all their enemies, which you will, um, you will uh, recall an enemy is someone who's actively attacking the Jews. So it wasn't, they didn't kill everybody. They only killed those who were attacking them. With the sword, killing and destroying, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. And in Susa, the, the capital, literally the citadel, the Jews killed, destroyed 500 men. And they killed the 10 sons. I'm not going to read these. I don't want to muddle through them. And the 10 sons of Haman, the son of Hamadoth of the Jews, a enemy. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. So this text tells us two things happened. One, everyone who attacked them, they responded and they killed. They didn't actively kill people. They weren't going around killing people. They were waiting for people to attack them. And the, window, the moment they were attacked, they then did what they did. They did their business and they killed Okay, and they destroyed. But secondly, we also read, they didn't take the, the plunder. Now, that is odd. Your Bibles are, are, are open. Look back at chapter 8, verse 11. Mordecai's decree. The second decree is what's going on here. And in the second decree, he said, you can take as much plunder as you'd like. But no one in all of Persia took their plunder. Why is that? Well, there's a backstory. The backstory goes back to 1 Samuel chapter 15 where God raised up Saul and said, I want you to take vengeance against the Amalekites. Because during the, the um, wilderness wanderings, we were coming to the promised land. Remember what the Amalekites did? They, they stood back at the back and they took off children and women. They killed children and women. These wicked, wicked people. So Saul, I want you to discipline them. This is a holy war. Language of 1 Samuel 15, 3 is the language of a holy war. I want you to kill them. And, they, and because it's a holy war, everything that you capture is mine. It's under the ban. Everything must be executed. Everything must be burned. And what did Saul do? He held back plunder. And that caused a mess. Okay, now, what is it? 400 years, 600 years later? What are God's people? The fact that they don't take the plunder, tell us about their mindset. What's going through their mind? Brothers and sisters, this is a holy war. Who ultimately is, is, is at being attacked here is not us, but God. That's what a holy war is. It's the world, it's Satan against God. Okay, and therefore as we participate in this holy war, this is God's people in Esther's day. As we participate in this holy war, the plunder we cannot touch because it belongs to God. It tells us their mentality. At this moment, they're engaged in the holy war. Brothers and sisters, do you understand that you're engaged in the holy war? 
but it's not against the flesh and blood. First, uh, Second Corinthians helped us out on that one. Okay, Second Corinthians 10, it's not flesh and blood, but it's about high places, destroying high places, bringing them down and taking no plunder, but giving it all, nothing of the world, giving it all unto God. Okay, brothers and sisters, they understood this was indeed that holy war. And at the end time, all of it, Isaiah 60, I want to read it, goes unto the Lord. So before us, we see the redeeming, the redeeming grace of God, which not only protected his people, but as a glorious foreshadowing of the um, restoration of his people to himself. Beautiful. But we're not done. This story of redemption, the glory of it, we see it in verse 11 through 15 now, the glory, or what I'm going to call the superabundance of God's redemption. Would you notice it could have ended there, but it doesn't. It goes further. It's incredible. And it gives us just that added little bit of, of amount that, that, that hopefully enables you to, to leave your incredibly encouraged and built up. Notice with me verse 11. On that day, the number of those who were killed in Susa, the capital, was reported to be uh, to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in Susa, the capital or the citadel. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Stop right there. He's not asking Esther for a status report. If any, if the, the moment the word gets out as to how many people died throughout the rest of his kingdom, it's going straight to the king, not to Esther. So why is he asking this? In essence, what he's doing here, guys, is he's saying, Esther, do you see you've been honored? Do you see what I have done for you? 500 people have died in the citadel of the capital city. And what's happened throughout the rest of the empire? All of this because I love you. Brothers and sisters, your sin is taken away. All of it. Because God says, I love you. That's how precious you are. God's redemption just isn't you're redeemed and you're not, not important to God. You're redeemed and we got to end this story with the king just saying, wow, look how wonderful you are to me. See, I love you. You're precious in my eyes. And then he says something amazing, verse 12b. Now, what is your petition? Now, is he, is he, is he joking there? He's not. Notice what it says. Look at the, the text. It shall even be granted you, and what is your further request? It shall also be done. What is not in this verse that you expect to be see in this verse? Yell it out. What is it? What, what are we not seeing here that we've already just saw? What is it? Up to half of the kingdom. He didn't say that here. Now, why? Because he puts no limits on it. He says, Esther, do you see how much I love you? Now, ask whatever ever you want and I'll grant it for you that's the superabundance of God's redeeming grace you go God does that for me he does it for you brothers and sisters now let me ask son was Ahasuerus would he have said sure had she said I want your death she wouldn't ask for that and you wouldn't presume she would so you know he didn't mean that but he didn't have to qualify it. what does he mean when he says ask whatever you want Whatever you want that fits a, a, a wife who's loved and adored by her husband. Do you understand? She's not going to ask for something that will contradict that. Listen to Ephesians 3.20. To God, who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. 
according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, do you see through this, the front lens of this, of this chapter, to see the, the other lens on this telescope that beholds the glory of God? What do you see? Just like Esther was able to ask whatever she wanted, God says the same thing to you this very moment. Now, are you going to ask for something that would be contrary to the love of the Father? Absolutely not. Doesn't make sense. But in that context, ask whatever you want, and God will do above and beyond everything you can ask or think. God, show me your glory. He'll shock you on that one. Pray for it, brothers and sisters, as the importunate uh, widow. Lord, Use me in your kingdom. Just take me. I don't care how. I don't care if it's ignominy. I don't care if it's, it just, just use me. God will use, you, will use you. You may not see it, but in glory you will. Ask exceedingly abundantly, God will answer. And the context is his kingdom and his service. Amazing. Now, this chapter ends with these last words, so I need to address them before I close this up. To, not to lose that point, we're going to come back to it at the very end. Then Esther said, if it pleases the king, she asked for, for two things. Let tomorrow also be granted the Jews who are in Susa to do according to the edict today, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows, so the king commanded that it should be done so. And the edict was issued in Susa, and Haman's ten sons were hanged. So this is the third decree, Esther's decree. She has two of them. First one is, I want another, another day of death. Now, a lot of commentaries, liberals go, she, you know what her namesake is? It's Ishtar. Ishtar is this wicked, evil queen deity of Persia and Babylon and Rome and Greece, and she's bloodthirsty. There you go. She's, she's, she's acting like her namesake, Ishtar. Brothers and sisters, that is not what's going on here. Let me explain it. When I was a little boy, I'm the youngest of four boys, and the distance was, was the three boys and three years and then me. So the, the, it was a little sided on their side. I was the younger guy, and my older brothers loved making me frightened. They derived pleasure in my despair. Well, I was in the basement. My bedroom was in the basement. And one of my brothers, I won't say who he is, but he is sitting in this room. <laughs> he... He just was on a rare moment, and he made me so frightened to sleep in my room because all the monsters and the bad guys who could kill me. That that night when it came time for bed, I wasn't going downstairs to the basement at all. And my dad, that involved my dad, of course, because all day long, guys on me, and my dad, of course, is not there. So now I'm afraid to go downstairs. And so my dad developed the uh, solution to fit the crime or whatever it's called, the punishment to fit the crime. The next night, Guy had to go down to the basement. We shut the doors, lights were all turned off, and I, ha- I, I, I could do whatever I wanted to torment him. So I remember being brought down, my dad standing right behind me, older brother Brant's behind him, and they're like, okay, scare him. But you know what? I may have been young, I may have been dumb, but I was smart enough to, uh, to realize whatever I do to Guy today, Tomorrow, I'm paying for. So I refused. I didn't do it. So my dad had Brant do it, and it was, <laughs> it was pretty good. He came up crying. I'm going, whoa. He was really frightened. Um, but the truth, I'll be known, I knew whatever I did to my older brother guy is going to come back on me tenfold. That's what's going on here. Brothers and sisters, they got one day. The Jews had one day. What happens tomorrow? 
When those same people that, that were attacking them and they didn't destroy completely, what happens tomorrow? What are they going to do to the Jews? Well, that is addressed by the second decree. One more day. Anthony Tomasino put it this way. Given the carnage that the Jews had just visited on their enemies, it seems reasonable that survivors might well seek revenge, whatever the law would normally allow. Indeed, in an honor-driven culture, it would be their responsibility to do so. A royal edict allowing a second day of violent self-defense would serve as a deterrent against any such reprisals. All right, that explains the second day. The, or the next day. And it also explains, helps us understand why in Purim it's two days. But what about the, the Haman's sons? That's bloodthirsty. Their bodies are dead. She says, and I want their dead corpses right now impaled on, on ten poles placed in the citadel of Susa. Um, that's what I want. And so enough, they did that. Well, how do you explain that? Brothers and sisters, that's for the days after the second day. See, in the ancient world, that's how they did, that's, they did that as a, as a deterrence for crime. When you, when you hung a person up, in essence, you said to the entire uh, community, if you do that, that will be your fate. Now, they're already dead, so she's not killing them. She's not being mean to them. But, but what she's saying is, and from this point on, if you attack God's people, that is what you and your children could very well, that's what could happen to you and your children. So this isn't Esther being evil. This is Esther being a wise, a wise leader. But that brings us then to the very end of the point I want you to see, verse 15. The Jews were then in Susa assembled on the 14th day, and sure enough, they killed 300 more men. That's not the point. But the point I want you to see is, brothers and sisters, the redeeming grace of God goes above and beyond all that you can ask or think. The redeeming grace of God involves Jesus Christ. And it is not Jesus Christ saving you out of this world. He's saving you in this world. He's not going to take away the cancers. He's not going to protect you from all the horrible things that are going to happen to you in this life, including growing old. If you have any questions about that, we've got one of the authorities on it. We have two or three in this room. Um, but not in this room now. One's not here. But you can talk with Gene. You can talk with the Prathers. They'll tell you about the horrors of what it is, the struggles that they have as they age. All that's going to happen to us most likely. Let's cry. Jesus Christ comes back. And God's not going to protect you from it. But what he doesn't want you to do is going through it going, God, why? That's the whole point of Esther. It's not because you've done anything wrong. God loves you, and he's working all things to bring about his ultimate victory in Jesus Christ to to the praise and glory of God alone. And that is why when he takes Esther and says, do you see how much I love you? Christian, you got to see in that God taking you by the hand, gazing at Calvary, saying, Christian, do you see how much I love you? Now ask whatever you want, and it's yours. Christian, I love this statement. Our problem when it, with regards to God is not that we, um, uh, I don't know how the first part is, but it's, it's, it ends with, we expect too little. Brothers and sisters, don't expect, and I'm not talking money, wealth, and health. That would not be what you'd ask God for. But you would ask God for wisdom. You would ask God to use you to bring about um, his glory on, on this earth. God, use me in the life of my children that they might grow up and behold your greatness. And you know what God might do to do that? He might show them your sin. And that's why you've got to be quick to say, I'm sorry, I blew it again. 
brothers and sisters, that's the third glorious end where God is leading, where God led God's people in Esther's day, and where God is leading you in your day this day to the praise and the glory of God's grace. Let's pray. Father God, we do pray that you indeed would do a work of grace in our lives this day, that you would enable our minds to be transformed by the renewing of, of um, by your, your word. They'd be renewed by your word. That, Father, we would, as days turn into weeks and months and years, that which would govern us and guide us would not be our fleshly predispositions, where we relate to you on the basis of our conduct, but that, that which would govern our relationship with you would be the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your love, your fellowship. God, make it so. We boldly pray that you would work that work of grace in our lives. That you would reveal to us, show us a, a greater glimpse of you, our God, in the coming weeks, months, and years. That, Father, you'd show us your glory and that we would be a people overwhelmed and overjoyed with your greatness and your glory. And that would be the basis upon which we would share the gospel. That would be the basis upon which we would say no to sin. And that would be the basis upon which we would say, Lord, here I am, send me. God, give us the grace to be as enraptured with you as Ahasuerus clearly was with his wife. That, Lord, you would be the apple of our eye always. And that we would be thrilled just to bear your name. God, it doesn't matter what else you do in our lives. Thank you that we bear your name. Transform us accordingly, Lord, we pray. And then, Lord, as, as this last quote that I did not read, great comment. Lord, give us the grace to be done trusting our interpretation of your providence, but just simply trust you in your providence as you work your will out in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.